Welcome back, everybody, to Then There Were Two, A History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Spitzel, as always. And we're excited because we are recording this episode on the eve of the 2023 baseball season. So baseball is at the forefront of our minds right now, both in the past and the present. I saw somebody posted on Facebook earlier this evening that it's like Christmas Eve, and it really is. And we even got kind of the festivities going a little early this week. Uh, my office within the past month or so has started going back to one day a week in office, but they've been doing it as like a theme day on each of those Tuesdays that we've been going in. And with the 2023 baseball season starting this week, we had uh, opening day as our theme day. So a bunch of people wore their uh, baseball jerseys and hats and shirts and what have you into work on Tuesday, which was pretty neat. My workplace is doing something similar, but because I'm completely remote, I don't get to partake in the popcorn inside little baseball helmets that they're passing out to people in the office. But with that said, I'm still looking forward to the upcoming season. But before we get into that, let's get into the 1957 World Series. Remember the Braves, Lucas? We've talked about them a couple of times when they were in Boston, but they are not in Boston anymore. They are in Milwaukee, or Milwaukee, if you want to get technical. They left for Milwaukee before the 1953 season. They were always second fiddle in Boston to the Red Sox, and they were perennial doormats. But once they get to Wisconsin, things change drastically. You have Fred Haney taking over as the manager midway through the 56 season. Hank Aaron earns the MVP award by leading the NL with 44 home runs, has 132 RBIs, and he hits 322. Not too far behind him, Eddie Matthews hits 32 homers, and Red Shandings, who was picked up in a trade, hits 310. They do lose Bill Bruton and Joe Adcock to injury. But West Covington hits 21 home runs, and Bob Hazel hits 403 and 134 at-bats. And if that's not enough, you have an incredible pitching staff. Warren Spahn, 21-11, 2.69. He wins the Cy Young Award. Lou Burdett, 17-9, 3.71 ERA. Bob Buell, 18-7, 2.74 ERA. And out of the bullpen, you've got Don McMahon with a 1.53 ERA, 9 saves. At 95-59, they win the pens by 8 games over the Cardinals. They are here, and they are stacked. Well, and this was a Braves team. I think they only finished one game out the year before. So they have been at least knocking on the door here for a little bit. Finally break through in a brand new city for our podcast. So the city of Milwaukee represent here in 1957. But you guys have a uh, dynasty that you're going up against. Yes, they are going up against a dynasty, and actually, it looks like my Chicago White Sox are going to have a shot at the pennant initially. You have Louis Aparicio, Nelly Fox, and May Minoso, guys who we'll talk about more in a couple of episodes, but the New York Yankees bats take over, and they breeze to the pennant. Mickey Mantle wins another MVP, 365, batting average, 34 home runs. Yogi Bear has 24 homers. Moose Gowron hits 304. Tony Kubek, the Rookie of the Year, hits 297. Whitey Ford takes kind of a step back this year, but Tom Sturdivant goes 16-6 as a 2.54 ERA. Bob Turley, 13-6, 2.71 ERA. And they acquire Bobby Shantz from Kansas City, 11-5, a 2.45 ERA. The Yankees go 98-56 and win the pennant over the White Sox by eight games. 
This is Casey Stengel's eighth pennant in nine seasons and Coach Frank Cressetti's record 17th series as a player or a coach. So you have guys who have been here before going up against a team that is really nervous because it hasn't been before, although Hank Aaron is not. But this is just another ho-hum season for the Yankees, I guess you could say. Yeah, I would definitely say so. Kind of going back team numbers, their team ERA in 1957, literally just a hair under a three ERA. Their staff ERA is listed on baseball reference at 2.999, so about as close as you can get. They hit 268 as a team, hit 145 home runs. You mentioned the 34 and 24 for Mantle and Barra, respectively. The Braves, just as a point of comparison, hit 269 on the season. They hit 199 home runs and posted a 347 earned run average. So, I mean, the offense on the whole seems to slightly favor the Braves, but the pitching favors the Yankees. But we'll just have to get into this and see what happens. So before we get into this series, by this point, it's very clear how people feel about the Yankees, and it's not a pleasant feeling. Probably more so than the days of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and even Joe DiMaggio. People have just gotten sick of the Yankees winning at this point. And baseball fans are so tired of the Yankees winning that, according to one of my books, even the crowd at Yankee Stadium rooted heavily for the Braves throughout the 1957 World Series. But I wonder if this had something to do with the fact that New York lost its other two baseball teams after this season. That's right, the Giants and the Dodgers siding their dissatisfaction with the polo grounds and Ebbets Field and a lack of parking facilities, not to mention some other outlying factors that I won't get into here because that could be divisive. Both teams are packing up for California as soon as this season is over. And we've talked about the Giants and the Dodgers a lot here during our 1950s episodes. But I wonder if a lot of the crowds filling Yankee Stadium during this series are a bunch of disgruntled Giants and Dodgers fans who just want the Yankees to get a taste of their own medicine. I mean, it's entirely plausible given the massive seating capacity at Yankee Stadium. We've been talking in pretty much every episode, there's 60 plus thousand that are cramming into that place in the Bronx every October game that's been played there. And given the fact that you have the Giants and Dodgers heading out for Northern and Southern California, respectively, I mean, I can kind of see a little bit of, especially... Brooklyn fans, given we've mentioned the last several episodes just how heated that rivalry has become, I could certainly see kind of a feeling of, if we can't be happy, you can't be happy either. Deal with it. Go Braves. I love it. So let's go to the first game of this 1957 World Series being attended by 69,476 Ford Frick and American Legion Player of the Year Fred Fox are in attendance, as well as, get this, Giants owner Horace Stoneham. What a ballsy move on his part to show his face during the World Series, knowing that his team is leaving New York. Yeah, especially given what we were just talking about with the fan base now. Obviously, I don't know that really anything happened, because I'm sure if there were something major that happened in terms of fan confrontations with him we would have heard about it. There would be some record. It would be stuff of, well, maybe not legend, but certainly 
a major chapter in the lore of baseball, but there really isn't a lot about it. So, I mean, the huevos on this man, impressive. Maybe the other hypothesis here is that Yankee fans are tired of winning, which you would never hear from a fan base in today's world. So they just wanted to see a team try and knock them off as long as it wasn't the Dodgers or the Giants. But be that as it may, here is what Game 1 brought us. It was a matchup between Whitey Ford and Warren Spahn, two of the great right-handed pitchers in Major League history. You have Hank Bauer doubling home the Yankees' first run, the first pitch from Spahn that he sees. The pitch bounces against the center field wall, and the Yankees end up with a one to nothing lead after the fifth inning. They score a couple of runs in the sixth inning. You have Warren Spahn coming out after five and a third innings, relieved by, and you might enjoy this particular name, Lucas, Ernie Johnson. That's the Ernie Johnson on TNT, who happens to be based in the city where the Braves play now, but that's neither here nor there. Coming up against Johnson, the first hitter, Jerry Coleman, he decides, I'm going to lay down a sack bunt on a squeeze play, and he does just that. And the only Brave with two hits off of Ford in this game is Wes Covington. Ford only allows five hits in the fifth World Series win of his career. The final score, Yankees three, Braves one. That, uh... Bunt ground out really being kind of some extra insurance that they didn't really need. The Braves getting their lone run on a red Shane Deanst RBI single in the top of the seventh, but that only made it three to one. They weren't able to really get anything more out of that. One note from earlier in the game, while the Yankees did win this game, there was a little bit of a Pyrrhic victory. So Muscaron was starting the game, batting cleanup, playing first base. He complained of some back pain going into the third inning, so he was replaced by Elston Howard for the final seven innings of this one. And for one of the kind of more complimentary pieces, that's not really a good sign if you've got a guy with back pain having to leave that early. The Braves strike back in the second inning of Game 2, which is attended by NL President Warren Giles, along with his son, 2nd Lieutenant William Giles of the Air Force. You have Hank Aaron tripping over Mickey Mantle's head in center to lead off this inning. Then he scores on a single by Adcock, who is recovered in time to play in this series. And he advances to second on Aaron's throw by Mantle. Mantle is playing hurt, by the way. And then the bottom of that inning, you have Wes Covington in left field for the Braves, making a big leaping catch of a likely double, which saved his team two runs. And that would turn out to be the difference of this game. Specifically, he robbed Chance of an extra base hit with a nice running catch towards the warning track. And then with one out in the third, the Braves show off some of their power. Johnny Logan hits a home run to left field. Hank Bauer leads off the third inning with a home run to the lower left field seats to extend his series hitting streak to nine games. And then you have Adcock and Andy Pafko leading off the fourth with back-to-back singles. And then Adcock scores on a Covington single. And then Pafko scores when the throw to third by Enos Slaughter and left bounces past Kubek into the Braves' dugout. So the Braves tie the series by winning 4-2. to two. And Lou Burdett, who's an ex-Yankee farmhand, won the first World Series game by a non-New York team since 1948. And Casey Stengel said afterwards, I'm not saying he throws the spitter, but he goes through all those motions. Maybe he gets some on the ball once in a while. It's hard to say. By this point, the spitball has long since been 
officially banned from Major League Baseball. All of the guys who were grandfathered in are long since gone. Maybe something was going on, maybe not. We don't know. But that was an interesting point you brought up there at the end of this. In this 4-2 Braves win, you mentioned that, yes, this is the first non-New York City team victory in a World Series game since 1948 because in the years since then, it has either been a Subway Series or a series in which a non-New York team has participated but gotten swept by a New York team. So crazy times we live in and maybe the uh, peak New York baseball. I mean, we've already seen it because you have both the Giants and the Dodgers leaving, but the zenith of New York baseball is on its decrescendo at this point. So the Braves are greeted at the airport by 20,000 fans when they return. And they are understandably excited for the first World Series game to be played in Milwaukee. Game 3, 45,804 pack into County Stadium. But Tony Kubek ends the party early with a homer to right field. He is the second batter. Buell is starting for the Braves. He issues back-to-back walks to Mantle and Barra. And then a wild pickoff throw by him to second base advances Mantle and Barra to second and third. And you have Hank Aaron falling to his knees to catch a sacrifice fly by McDougal. And then with two outs of the first inning, Buell is replaced by 19-year-old Puerto Rican rookie Juan Pizarro. The Yankees get three runs that inning. The Braves do get a little bit of offense in the third inning. You have Bob Hazel reaching third on a wild pitch, and he scores on a single by Shane Deanst. Bob Turley does not last long in this game either. He is replaced by Don Larson after one and two-thirds innings. But Mantle hits a two-run homer to right center, which is the ninth in his series career. Hank Aaron counters that with his own two-run homer to right center. And then Kubek hits a three-run homer, his second of the day. The Braves leave the bases loaded in the first, second, sixth, and ninth innings. The Yankees win this by a score of 12-3. So, all of a sudden, the Braves fans are thinking, well... We're in a dogfight, and this is a good Yankees team. They're not backing down. No, absolutely not, and I'm sure there has to be at least a little bit of nerves. I mean, yeah, this is a really good Yankee team, but coming in and getting your butt kicked this badly in what's supposed to be a celebratory day at County Stadium where it's your first World Series game there, that's just kind of a rough way to go into it, and I'm doing a quick count here with all those innings of leaving the bases loaded 14 Braves were left stranded over the course of game three yeah there was at least one Milwaukee native happy in this game that was Tony Kubek so he celebrated with two home runs but the rest of Milwaukee is miserable as a result so we go to game four which is attended by AL president Will Harridge Reds vice president GM Gabe Paul and Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley so at least he was smart to attend the World Series away from New York. I don't know what Horace Stone was thinking attending Game 1 in New York, but hey, I guess everybody's got their own way to get through life, right? Yeah, I mean, far be it for me to criticize anybody over that. So, Eddie Matthews doubles off the right field fence for his first hit of the series, so it takes him four games to finally get in the hit column. And then Aaron hits a three-run homer over the left field screen. You have some more power, Frank Torrey who is the brother of future Yankees manager Joe Torrey, hitting a solo home run, which is his first at County Stadium. And this is actually a very interesting tidbit because 
Frank Torrey had been in the game for a couple of years. He was with the Braves in 56 and 57, and he had not yet homered at County Stadium in either regular season. And finally, he gets a home run at County Stadium, and it's in the World Series. So how much of a monkey off his back do you think that is to be? Oh, that has to be huge for him. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, Warren Spahn is just dealing. He is able to get Yankee after Yankee to ground out. I'm counting three different double plays over the course of about four innings to help keep the uh, Braves ahead 4-1, to one, at least until we get to the top of the ninth. Yeah, at least until we get to the top of the ninth, in which the Yankees are down to their last strike. Then Elston Howard crushes the Braves fan spirits. He hits a game-tying three-run homer on a full count. And we have to go to the 10th inning as a result. And the Yankees don't waste any time there either. You have a triple by Hank Bauer, which drives in a Yankees run, and they are up by a score of 5-4. to four. That also extends his series hitting streak to 11. And I love what the World Series film says this, because I watched this before we recorded this episode. And this is Milwaukee's darkest hour, says the narrator. And considering how badly the Braves got their butts whipped in Game 3, and how soul-crushing the past two innings in Game 4 have been, you can't really think otherwise right now. Definitely not, but you know what the saying goes. The night is darkest before the dawn, and dawn is coming. Indeed, it is coming. The Yankees still have to pitch in the bottom of the 10th inning, and Nippy Jones comes in to pinch hit for Spahn, and he is hit by Tommy Burns' first pitch to lead off the 10th. When Jones is hit on that first pitch, umpire Augie Donatelli didn't see it and did not grant him first base. But Jones retrieves the ball and he points to a black shoe polished stain on it. And he was promptly awarded first. So literally by inches, the first hitter of the bottom of the 10th inning is going to first base. I mean, how close can you get in a situation like that? Then he is pinch run for by Felix Mantilla, and Byrne is replaced by Bob Grimm. And we have a Shane Dean stack bunt, and then Logan doubles to left to tie the game, and then the film says it's chasing the gloom from County Stadium, and absolutely right there. And I'm impressed, too, that you have the situation of, hey, look at this ball, look at the shoe polish, and the umpire being willing to come back and say, okay, you know what, you're right, take your base. I don't know that that's necessarily something we would see nowadays. Now, granted, this would get reviewed by replay in today's game and make this a moot point. One of the other interesting things, you mentioned the uh, Shane Dean sacrifice bunt to move... uh, Pinch runner Felix Mantilla over to scoring position. Now, after that takes place, the Yankees make some defensive substitutions. So Enos Slaughter comes into the game, replaces Mickey Mantle. Slaughter goes in to play left, and Tony Kubek, who has been playing left field, moves over to center. And then, go figure, the guy that gets brought right into the game, Enos Slaughter, 
gets a ball hit out his direction as Johnny Logan doubles deep down the left field line to tie the game. And all of a sudden, Milwaukee has to be feeling a lot better. They've got new life with Eddie Matthews coming to the plate. And you have the option for an intentional walk here, which would set up both a double play and a righty-right matchup against Hank Aaron. But Stengel decides to buck conventional wisdom and pitch to Matthews. And that turns out to be a big mistake because with two strikes on him, Matthews hits a pitch over the left field fence. The game is over. The Braves win it by a score of 7-5. County Stadium is up for grabs at this point. Grimm immediately walked off the mound as soon as he served that pitch up. So, all of a sudden, the series is tied at 2-2. And very easy, could have been 3-1 Yankees. So, if I'm a Milwaukee citizen right now, I am through the moon. You have to be feeling a lot better, especially given how Game 3 went. And then you're seemingly stealing game four in a sense just the way that they were able to come back and win this one now all of a sudden it's debatable whether or not momentum is actually a thing but if it is actually a thing it is squarely in the home clubhouse right now and before game five jones decides to show off for the cameras where the ball hits him on the shoot to begin that 10th inning rally so obviously he's very pleased with himself and among those in attendance are Red Sox VP and GM Joe Cronin, Tigers GM John McHale, and owner John Fetzer. Covington, who is really flashing his leather in this series, he robs McDougal of a home run in left field. Yogi Berra reaches when Adcock fumbles a grounder to first, but hitting into an inning-ending double play is a man that we haven't talked about a whole lot or really at all, Harry Simpson. And then with two outs in the sixth inning, Matthews beats out a grounder to second base and becomes the game's first runner to reach third on Aaron single. And then he scores on Adcock's second pitch single. Then you have Enos Slaughter hitting to the Yankees' third double play in the seventh inning. The game is over in two hours. The Braves win this 1-0. The two-hour game time is the shortest since game four of the 1948 series, which was played an hour and 31 minutes. So... I don't know, maybe New York teams love to drag games on, which I guess is a little bit of foreshadowing for baseball in general. But nonetheless, an awesome effort by Burdett, who is the starting pitcher for the Braves, only gives up seven hits. And the Yankees are going back to the Bronx down 3-2, to two, although they are probably down the series partially because Mantle was out of the lineup with an injury. Yeah, I mean, Mantle's had a lot of tough luck with a lot of these things, but you have to give a lot of credit. This is Lou Burdett's second complete game win of the series to this point. You mentioned the uh, scattering seven hits over the nine innings. He strikes out five, does not walk a single batter, outduels Whitey Ford, who in the loss, seven innings of one run ball, only allowed six hits, one walk, two strikeouts. So, I mean, both pitchers playing really well. It's not quite the... Don Larson in Game 5 last year. But instead, once again, the Yankees under the gun going back to Yankee Stadium, which didn't work out for them a couple years ago. We'll see if it works out for them here. Well, Game 6 is a milestone for Yogi Berra. This is his 53rd World Series game. That is a record. And he celebrates by hitting a two-run, two-out home run to right for the 10th of his series career in front of A's owner Arnold Johnson, who is in attendance. 
And Buell does not fare well in this start either for the Braves. He gives up two runs and he is relieved by Johnson after two and two-thirds innings. Uh, Matthews double in the fourth gives the Braves their first run scoring position, but he is stranded at third. You have Torrey homering on a full count to rights to lead off the fifth. Then Turley, who's on the mound for the Yankees, he retires the next six Braves without a ball being hit out of the infield. And then Aaron ties the score with his third homer of the series into the left center field bullpen. But then Hank Bauer homers inside the left field foul pole to give the Yankees the lead and allows Bauer to tie the series record hitting streak of 13. You have Covington making another nice catch in left. The throw home is high and wide. However, you have Braves catcher Del Rice tagging out Yogi Berra trying to score. But in the end, that is just a footnote in a 3-2 Yankees victory. So for the third straight year, the World Series is going to a seventh game. If you've been paying attention to our last couple episodes so far, that Game 7 has favored the road teams. You had the Brooklyn Dodgers winning in the Bronx in 1955. In 1956, the Yankees got revenge by winning Game 7 at Ebbets Field. And so as we come back to Yankee Stadium for yet another Game 7, despite the loss here, the Braves have to be feeling fairly confident, especially given that even though he's coming in on two days rest, Lou Burdett gets the nod for Milwaukee. So the reason Burdett is pitching Game 7 is because Warren Spock, who had been scheduled to pitch Game 7, was inflicted with the Asian flu, which was at pandemic levels in 1957 1958. And he is going to have to pitch the game of his life to bring Milwaukee its first World Series championship. And Hank Bauer tries to dispel any of those dreams by doubling to lead off the first to set a series record hitting streak of 14. But the Yankees are unable to take advantage of that. And a crucial point in the game, Tony Kubek throws to begin the double play, but it's high and it pulls Coleman off the back and everyone is safe. And then with one out in the third, you have an Eddie Matthews double that drives in two runs. And then there's an RBI single to Aaron. Larson is out of the game in favor of Bobby Shantz. And if that's not enough for the Braves offensively, you have Del Crandall homering two left in the eighth inning. And with the bases loaded and two outs in the ninth inning, Eddie Matthews plays scouring as a pull hitter by moving a bit near the foul line, and that allows him to make a backhand stab and make a force out at third. So Looper Dad pitches his second shutout in Game 7 on two days rest. The Milwaukee Braves are your World Series champions. And the Yankees were so frustrated by Burdett's breaking pitches that they spend most of the game asking the umps to check the ball for foreign substances, but they found nothing. And Burdett becomes the first pitcher to throw two shutouts in a World Series since Christy Matthewson threw three back in 1905. That was actually, when I was looking at the numbers, that was who I was thinking of. My initial thought was, I mean, this is kind of the poor man's Christy Matthewson performance, but when you consider a two shutout out of your three complete game victories, a poor man's Christy Matthewson performance, that's still pretty darn good. We asked a comment about it, Burdett said, in the series I pitched as I always do, it was just one of those things. Whenever I needed something, I got it. 
So Hank Aaron had an incredible series. He led all regulars with a 393 batting average at 11 hits, including a triple, three home runs, and seven RBIs. But it was Burdett's pitching that everybody was talking about. As Dan Daniel wrote in the New York World Telegram, I dare say the results of the 1957 World Series pleased more people than had the outcome of any classic in the past. The Braves made the dreams of millions of Yankee haters come true. And you have to imagine, based on what we talked about at the beginning of this episode, about a bunch of people at Yankee Stadium rooting for the Braves, that there is some credence to that. And indeed, the Braves arrive at the airport on a United plane hours after Game 7. Some fans waiting for them were dressed as Native Americans, but that's all I'm going to say about that. But an estimated 400,000 Braves fans took to the streets. They were drinking beer, which, you know, it's Milwaukee and Wisconsin. So, of course, that's true. They were waving signs. They were saying off fireworks. And they vandalized anything they could find. And Jimmy Cannon wrote, It is as if all the weeping in the world had subsided for this holiday in Milwaukee. That's poetic. And so we mentioned uh, the phenomenal numbers for Hank Aaron, but obviously Lou Burdett is named World Series MVP for this one. And I mean, when you go 3-0 and with two shutouts, post an 067 ERA, strike out 13 guys, only walk four, have a sub-1 whip for the series, and basically carry it when you have four other pitchers with ERAs of at least 10, including uh, Bob Trowbridge, who gives up five runs over the course of one inning for a uh, astronomical 45 ERA. Yeah, I mean, it's basically Lou Burdett was the main reason why the Braves won this game, but it certainly helped with the offense they got from guys like Hank Aaron. And I hope that the people of Milwaukee enjoyed this celebration because as of the time we're recording this, they are still waiting for another World Series victory. And God willing, they will have that feeling again someday, maybe because we're less than 100 miles south of Milwaukee. So we kind of consider them good neighbors. So we want them to have just as much happiness as we do down here in the Chicago area. There's the Cubs-Brewers rivalry, and I've been to games up there a bunch. And I mean, there's definitely a rivalry to it. I personally don't have any like major ill will towards the Brewers franchise. So yeah, I mean, if they get to a point where they're able to pull something off like that again, good for them. Well, yeah, in my last trip to American Family Field a couple of years ago, everybody was complimenting my Negro League jersey that I was wearing because they were honoring the Negro Leagues that night. They had a few former players being honored for that. So definitely some hospitable people there in Milwaukee. And if you're into tailgating, it's an absolute must. Absolutely. And so one final note that I have on this series, we mentioned that this was a series that went seven. Game seven was at Yankee Stadium. As of the time we are recording this, that is the last game seven of a World Series played in that ballpark. So that is how we will leave it. Let us look forward to 1958. We get a grudge match between these teams. The Yankees are out for revenge. The Braves are trying to assert their dominance. Who will triumph? Tune in next week to find out. So for Lucas Metzl, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our 1957 episode of Then There Were Two History of the World Series. Make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe as well. We'll see you next time.